Hello, and welcome to Proofing in Lies. I'm Elle Rochford, amateur baker, professional sociologist. I'm Andrew Schreiber. I'm a public defender in Cleveland, Ohio. And today we're excited. We're talking about public sociology, and uh, we're joined by the co-founders of Applied Worldwide, uh, Stephanie Wilson and Luke Hanna. Yeah, so it's a great episode. We're very, we are very, very excited to have them. Um, and what did we make this week? So we are doing like, it's like a crossover episode. It's so fun to me. So we did an Applied Worldwide cake, and we also wrote an article for their site. Uh, so you can visit AppliedWorldwide.com, and you can read the kind of companion piece to the podcast. Yeah. Um, so the cake we made is, their color scheme is like dark gray and yellow. Mm. Um, so we did kind of a theme on that, like a riff on that color scheme with a mango curd filled yellow or um, lemon cake. Um, so it was a lemon cake with mango curd in between the layers and then a kind of cream cheese inspired frosting. It wasn't a true buttercream and it wasn't a true cream cheese frosting. Um, it was sort of just a, a mix of the fats we had in the house. <laughs> I'm a big believer in always having some kind of flour and some kind of fat on hand. Um, I mean like butter, not like animal fat. I, I don't work with um, like meat products. Um, but if you have like Crisco, butter, margarine, and some flour, you can make some kind of dessert. Mm -hmm. Ideally have a fruit and something, you know, to sweeten it. But um, so it's kind of a... A mix of different things. The cake itself was supposed to have buttermilk, but we didn't have it, and I didn't feel like going out for it. So I actually subbed. Um, we had non, uh, not non-fat. It was non-flavored, so just like straight plain Greek yogurt. Mm -hmm. So I used Greek yogurt instead of buttermilk, which is not like an ideal substitution, but it made the cake kind of um, fluffy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it turned out really well. It did. I liked the cake a lot. Yeah. So buttermilk is its own thing. Um, Greek yogurt is not like a, an approved internet substitution, but I figured it would work well enough and I just needed something like more liquid uh, than like butter, but more solid than milk. So that's kind of my style of baking in general is I feel like I have enough of a feel for the thickness of the batter that I can just start throwing stuff around until it looks right. Mm -hmm. I am a little devastated with how the mango curd turned out. Yeah, I, um, I, the cake was very good. The frosting was very good. I think it was, what, because you used, like, the frozen mangoes we had. Yeah. I think that, that made it kind of, I don't know, iffy in the center. Yeah, so during the pandemic, one of my few, like, exciting things is when we go grocery shopping because um, we don't do anything. Um, we are now double dose vaccinated, so maybe we will start doing things. But I got really excited and on a whim, I bought all this frozen mango and I was like, I'm going to learn to do some. I'm going to make like a mango jam or a mango something, mango candies. Mm -hmm. I, I really um, went hard on the mango. And unfortunately, I don't know if it's if it's that it was frozen or maybe it had like thawed and refroze and maybe like that affected the taste of it, I think this mango curd could be incredible with fresh mango or maybe with a higher quality frozen mango. Um, but it had like a weird taste to it. Mm -hmm. And um, 
not really a mangoey flavor. It was like a weird grassiness. And I tried to salvage it by adding some lemon extract. Um, but I think the lemon extract actually made it a lot worse because then it had like a weird alcohol flavor to it. Um, but the mango curd was really fun to make because you puree the mango and then you strain it and then you make the curd with like egg and egg yolk and sugar. Um, if you've ever made a lemon curd, it's really fun. It's, it's kind of the same process. If you've never made a, le a lemon curd, oh my God, try it. It's so fun. It's so rewarding. It's really tasty. You can put it on anything. So I think I would try making the mango curd again. Um, I'm ready to get curd again. <laughs> Uh, I love using, I have a really, um, I was going to say a really nice blender. It's not nice in the sense that it's not like a professional grade blender. I just really like this blender. It was a gift from someone from like a garage sale. Um, and it's like the best blender I've ever owned. It is a good blender. Yeah, I love this blender. Um, so like I'm ready to puree again. Maybe I'll stay away from mango for a little bit, but there's something really satisfying about pureeing and then straining. Like it just feels really professional you get a nice smooth, um, product. And, and so it looked nice. The cake I think turned yeah. out really well. I did some chocolate work. I'm trying to get more into sugar and chocolate work. Um, and I thought the chocolate tempered really nicely. It had like a little bit of a snap. Yeah. Um, no, it was good. I mean, the chocolate, like I said, everything else was, was great. The chocolate was good. The lemon cake was phenomenal. Yeah. Was super fluffy, super moist. And it did, I, I think the, the yogurt maybe gave it, you know, just like a little bit of a tang that mm -hmm. like went well with the, the lemon. Um, and that was really good. So, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, the, the curd really let it down. It was, it was pretty sad. So we were excited to like, now that we're vaccinated, we had dinner inside with my parents. We're not, you know, going crazy to parties or hosting lots of people, but we had this like dinner with my parents and my dad was trying so hard not to tell me the mango curd was bad. And yeah. so at one point I just said, Dad, you don't you don't have to eat the filling. He's like, Oh, okay, thank goodness. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Yeah. But the pictures will be up on Instagram and you'll get to see our fun. Um Yeah, I like the logo looked really good. It was yay. very cute and uh, the cake looked really good. So. Yeah, so you'll have to check out our Instagram for the, the cake to see the logo, and then you'll have to go over to their website to yeah. see uh, how well I did their color scheme justice. Yes. Um, all right, should we should we head to the interview? Yeah, so please enjoy uh, Applied Worldwide, and like Al said, go, uh, go check them out online, go check out our companion piece to this episode, and uh, please enjoy. Hi, and welcome back. This is Proofing and Lies, and we're here with Stephanie Wilson and Luke Hanna, sociologists and co-founders of Applied Worldwide. How are you doing today? We are doing good. We're happy to be here talking to you both. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Yeah, so I know you both through uh, the sociology department, and now you're working on Applied Worldwide. So could you tell us a little bit about what Applied Worldwide does? Uh, do you go by Applied or Applied Worldwide, the full title? Yeah. So uh, we go by Applied Worldwide. Um, we are a digital content production company, and our emphasis is in applied sociology. Probably a little bit of background, I think, uh, on how this came to be. Uh, we, we were looking at um, sort of how people view the field of sociology, um, you know, whether that be an undergraduate student who was just starting to take a class or graduate students, um, 
even down to like parents whose kids decided to get a degree in sociology and just and wanted to go to the internet to find out what it was, right? Um, we started thinking about those people and what kind of information they would find if they went to the internet to learn about sociology. And so we did, um, you know, a lot of different uh, background research and, and, and search engine research and, and things on the internet. And um, we decided to begin producing content that um, sort of changed the way that people viewed the discipline. Um, as it stands, when you Google these, what is sociology or what kind of job can I get in sociology? Oftentimes these responses are like, uh, you know, Ivy League schools, their departments, or um, some really vague maybe description on what sociology is. There's not very good specific content. And so we just sought out to sort of fill that void. Um, and we wanted to focus on a sort of worldwide application mostly because I think we love to travel and, and we love to, uh, you know, kind of network beyond our own context. So that's, that's sort of how it got started. Yeah. And so over, let's see, we started in October of 2019 is when we launched our website. And um, over the last, I guess, year and a half, the projects we've kind of taken on, one of them is a series of publications of profiles of applied and clinical sociologists. And our audience for that is really, um, we're aiming for undergraduate and graduate students who are studying sociology. And again, maybe their parents who are like, what is my kid gonna do with this degree? Um, can go to that publication series and um, view. Right now we're mostly representing sociologists in the US, Canada and the UK, um, but see what sociologists are doing outside of um, going the traditional route of being a college professor. Also, I'll, you know, I'll ask the question for the listeners like me who are not academics. Uh, what, what is applied sociology? Like, what does that mean? What's the difference? Yeah, I'll let Luke take this question because this is kind of his. All right. Yeah, so time. this applied sociology and like that actual term, um, I think the way that it gets used currently it's sort of hard to, to, to pin down because uh, we've gotten to a place where specialization is key. And so there's just so many people really kind of taking this term and, and run with it. But where we come from, we go back to this guy uh, named Lester Ward. He was a sociologist uh, in the early 1900s. And his, he made this distinction between applied sociology and pure sociology. I'll explain those two terms, but then um, he also talked about a dynamic sociology where he said we need both of these forms um, in order for society to sort of move forward and function. So what are these two things, right? The differentiation here. Um, he talks about pure sociology as the production of knowledge. Um, this, these are going to be your sort of academics, if you will, or professors, right? people who are doing research, uh, publishing in journals, and just advancing our knowledge of, of how we see the world around us. And then he talks about applied sociology, which is uh, taking that knowledge um, and, and sort of using it to create interventions in our society, um, particularly interventions that improve the well-being of society. That was sort of his, his language. Going back to this idea of, of dynamic sociology, we saw the, the field of sociology as something that really favored the production of knowledge. Uh, so many people who were going in to get their degrees, um, particularly advanced degrees, 
we're doing that um, with, with the intention of becoming researchers, of trying to find jobs in this academic market. But people who were looking for opportunities to sort of do applied sociology, again, didn't have so much of a, of a vision on, on how to go about doing that. We're, we're talking really broad and kind of abstract at this point. Um, it's kind of meta theory or something, right? Meta sociology. Um, but so then what that means for us today, um, there's, there's so many ways that we can apply sociology to sort of make society better. Um, we see a lot of people doing public sociology, which is maybe um, taking some complex ideas and theories and interpreting them or, you know, applying them to local contexts. Things yeah. like that. I would call what you guys are doing public sociology. <laughs> yeah. Podcasting has become mm-hmm. a really big part of that, you know. You know, but one of the really major things about applied sociology that so many people want to know about is how can I get a job? I mean, is there, am I, you know, it's great that I take this interesting class mm-hmm. and I've learned to, you know, write something or I've learned to think about the world differently or something, but you know, how is that going to make me money in the end is so important to so many people. So um, that's, that's also something that we're really trying to hone in on and, and sort of paint this idea that you can do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I think like when we're talking about applied sociology in the context of applied worldwide, it's um, really focused on career tracks outside of or not necessarily outside of, because you could be an academic sociologist doing applied work, um, but just options for using that sociological knowledge that we're producing through research um, to apply it to our communities and hopefully make them better for the majority of people in them or all of the people in them if possible. I think it's interesting um, as someone who kind of goes back and forth between applied and theoretical work because I'm a researcher, but I also do consulting work, there's there's kind of a stigma uh, in academics, at least, about applied and public sociology. And I wondered if, if you could talk a little bit about why that is and if that's changing at all. Oh, yeah. This, um, this reminds me of a paper. I feel like Luke may have had the same thought. I don't know. But um, about the marginalization of application in sociology. Do you remember the authors of that paper? Yeah, Jay Weinstein is the author. Jay Weinstein. Mm-hmm. So he's, a, I guess, a well-known American applied public sociologist. And he wrote about the marginalization of application in sociology and how um, it primarily, from his opinion, stems from that kind of work being performed by women and people of color. So like W.E.B. Du Bois another well-known American sociologist and a black sociologist. Um, He did a lot of work in communities and it was sort of, again, marginalized in the discipline. And Jane Addams, Mm -hmm. Jane Addams is another example of doing that work in communities. And Jay Weinstein's argument is that we sort of marginalize that work because it's been performed by people in oppressed positions, especially when we're talking about like the institutions in academia. And both of those figures, actually, um, interestingly enough, started organizations, you know, when we're talking about Hull House and, you know, the NAACP started, but, you know, they had a hand in it, of course, Mm -hmm. which I think also kind of speaks to um, the importance of organizing um, around these, these ideas. You know, I, I know that I've had um, sort of, 
I've, we've both had our experiences in graduate school and, and sort of having feet in academia. And I think that um, there's a lot of really amazing individual people working in academia, right, who have the, the, the initiative and the ability to do these applied things, you know, and really make changes. But one of the problems is just organization, you know? I mean, when you've got so many individuals kind of doing their own thing, I mean, it makes it very difficult for that to be a sustainable practice long-term. And so um, Stephanie likes to talk a lot about the network that we're building with Applied Worldwide. And, um, you know, that's one of the most important things about it is that we've got this place to go to see, you know, if there, wh whatever problem that an organization or a group or a society or whatever sort of level we're talking about, problems that they may face, we have the, the, the network and the, the knowledge of where to go and who to contact maybe to get information um, on those things. So, um, yeah, network, organizing, um, all of those things are just so important to our organization, as well as I think uh, the discipline um, sort of more broadly. Well, I think that goes with some of the things I've noticed we're going between kind of academic work and, and community work is I think in academics, you are really rewarded for working solo versus um, in community projects, you're working on interdisciplinary teams. Um, and that work is often uh, not rewarded in academics, at least in, in my experience. So I wonder if that's, that's part of it. Yeah, I think definitely. Cause yeah, like the solo authored paper is everybody's goal, but really you're, I mean, I think like you're bound to produce better research or a better intervention if you have like a group of people and especially a group of people that have different expertise and backgrounds. But yeah, I do feel like that probably contributes to the stigma of it. Mm -hmm. And I think this sort of just academia in general um, and like the, I guess, elitism of certain institutions and of course like different departments being ranked by where their students end up working. And if you're not working in an academic position, it doesn't really contribute to the rank of that department once you leave. And so of course, these people who are running departments, they want their students to succeed, but they also want their department to succeed. So I think that they kind of get stuck in this weird position of encouraging all sociologists to be academics, um, even though that's not really even realistic. There's not enough academic jobs for all the sociologists graduating with graduate degrees anyway, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and for our listeners, I don't know how much people who don't, aren't in grad school know about how this all works. Yeah. But essentially, at least in our department and at least in sociology in general, grades don't really matter. It's all about your publication record and you're rewarded more for having your name higher up on the paper and you're rewarded the most for having just your own work. And then you kind of translate those publications into jobs later. And uh, it's, it's a really bizarre system if you've never been exposed to it before. Mm -hmm. um, I know going into grad school, I really didn't understand how it worked. And mm -hmm. it's, it's quite an intense, I don't wanna say it's a pyramid scheme, but it certainly has <laughs> that feeling sometimes. Yes, it does. <laughs> um, so if, yeah, if you're unfamiliar with the world of grad school and academics, 
there's a whole series of, of ranking systems and tiers and um, it's, it's its own thing for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, I mean, the, the stuff you're describing sounds a lot like, I, so I'm an attorney and, and the stuff you're saying sounds a lot like how lawyers work, right? The most successful attorneys are the ones who go into academics or who, you know, go into big law firms and never see the inside of a courtroom. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the least successful ones are the ones like, you know, schlubs like me who are in court every day. Uh, yeah, it, it feels very similar in terms of how, how community facing stuff is, is sort of secondary or ignored. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because we obviously don't have experience in that field. Um, but a lot of I would think a lot of lawyers come from a sociology background or maybe not a lot, but mm -hmm. some or law and society. So kind of interesting. Um, so I wondered if we could hear about, so we kind of started with you wanting to show people what sociologists do. So I guess, so what are sociologists doing? What, what have you found? Yeah, oh, man. So, so yeah, so um, this is, this is really great. Um, it goes back to Stephanie was talking about our, um, our profiles project, right? And so I want to expand on just a little bit because um, talking about organization and academics. So if you're anybody who's gone into this field at all, or most fields, right, even legal studies and things, right, there's conferences that folks attend, there's professional organizations, right, um, that you have to go to. And this is oftentimes a really strong support system for people who are doing work, right. Um, also, it's pretty much the biggest network that we have. So for us, we, we like you were saying, we wanted to sh kind of showcase um, the type of work that people were doing. And so we started out by partnering with these professional organizations, uh, which I think we're up to, to five now, um, including really the big ones, the, the British Sociological Association, American Sociological Association, uh, as well as the uh, Canadian um, Sociological Asso Association. So we partnered up with these organizations and they sent out sort of blasts to their members um, asking to, for them to um, provide uh, profiles, I guess is what we call them, but um, give us information that they might be able to pass on to either graduate students or undergraduate students. Um, and so we give them an interview form and they fill out these profiles and uh, we sort of pass them out social media and uh, search engines. So um, we've got well over, what do we have now? A couple dozen of these at this point. Yeah. Um, but the, the easiest way to kind of classify this um, sociologically is like kind of by industry. And mm -hmm. so we have people in uh, um, media or advertising and marketing. These folks are, for instance, creating campaigns for businesses that um, take into account the, the issues that are important in, in contemporary society. So for us, it's obviously all boils down to things like race, uh, gender, and social class. So using that sociological knowledge to, to, to go out into a company and say, you know, if you're going to advertise your, your product or whatever, here are some ways that you can advertise this um, that are inclusive to people of these different groups. Mm -hmm. So advertising is a really good example. Criminal justice research in communities. You know, one of our previous colleagues from Purdue, Jackie, we have a profile of her. Um, doing data analysis and interpreting patterns in data from the courts. Um, and another person doing criminal justice work in just improving 
responses Who's in that? our community. Lauren, Lauren McDonald. She, we met her at our master's program. Um, so she actually got a master's in applied sociology and then went into, um, she's a professional research assistant at one of uh, University of Colorado's campuses. So she's still like in an academic setting, but working in a lab that does research in the community. Um, health. And lots of people working in health that we've connected with as well. Um, a lot of those people are doing research in sort of larger think tank type spaces. One was um, working on improving patient outcomes with Kaiser Permanente and I don't know what other examples there's just like yes so many so yeah so what do we cover health uh marketing i'm scrolling through right uh, now. business and design is another big one um so oh, yeah. design uh de design and development so which can be anything right so designing a website mm -hmm. designing a you know course design even um in a, you know if you were a teacher or a professor you know there's a big trend right now on decolonizing the curriculum right this is all got to do with people doing applied sociology. I mean, you have to go and design a curriculum that's decolonized, you know? Um, mm -hmm. You have things... to know what that means and sociology will teach you that mm -hmm. in order to do it. Um, um, yeah, so design is a big one. Organizational <laughs> consulting, which is kind of a broad one because you could think of, I mean, you could do organizational consulting with criminal justice organizations, which is kind of what um, we were saying our one colleague is doing. Yeah, I like I like organizational consulting um, that the way that I like to sort of describe that is like social work, but for organizations, right? You're not helping necessarily individuals, um, but you're helping the organizations, which, you know, some work that I've done in the past that that might sort of fall in this realm would be like working for a local government, right? I mean, there's a local government and they're looking for innovative or creative ways to connect with their residents, to get feedback, to get input on policy decisions or developments. Um, and, you know, in, in sociology and social science more generally, you know, you, you learn those, those methods to, to go out and um, get information from people. So it's doing research, but it's doing research for the purpose of, of sort of creating a change uh, rather than for proving or disproving a theory or something like that you know yeah those are some of our examples there but <laughs> very cool well it's interesting because like some of my research kind of dovetails into social media and technology and there is a huge market for sociologists in tech because mm -hmm. you get products designed and they roll out and it turns out they haven't workshopped some of the things that you know a sociologist would ask about right yeah. That's where you see like um, some motion sensors won't work on dark skin because it didn't occur to the research team to think about race and class and gender when they're designing something. Um, and so I think there is this kind of, I think sociologists are having a moment, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing a ton of sociologists in the Biden administration. So I, you know, I think this is a great time to be an applied sociologist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What you're talking about with user experience, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is a huge thing. Um, this is, and in tech, so a little bit of a plug, I guess we, in January, we, we published an article written um, by a sociologist who works at Microsoft. And um, her name is uh, Iga Kozlowska. She works at Microsoft and she works 
she wanted to write an article for us because she said all through graduate school, she heard about user experience and that this was the only way she could possibly use her, her, not her knowledge, you know, but which, so she wrote this article for us talking about all kinds of ways that sociologists are useful in, in tech. And one thing that I found really fascinating is um, the influence of sociologists in AI, in artificial intelligence, right? So just um, as an example, right? Like when there's algorithms and things that are placed out there, right? Making sure that they're not excluding different people or making, you know, making sure that perhaps certain people aren't excluded from, you know, whatever data they're using to create these algorithms, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, technology, you know, I mean, <laughs> There's, there's no way around it, right? We're not going to move away from technology. Um, also, you know, privacy. Privacy mm -hmm. is such a big deal right now. Um, ethics. We had somebody from Mexico write for us about um, online data collection, right? He, he, he does sort of digital ethnography mm -hmm. and, um, you know, pulling information that people have posted out there without the intention of necessarily being researched, right? I mean, they're, mm -hmm. they're just posting stuff because that's what you do with social media. And so there's like, there's research ethics behind that, you know, how much of that should we really be using to make decisions or, or um, you know, I don't know, policy, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, technology is great. Uh, I really love, I love talking tech stuff. Back when you were teaching, you had, you had like social Twitter, didn't you? You had like a whole Twitter-based project. Yeah, um, every student who's ever taken a class of mine um, has a Twitter account. Um, <laughs> no doubt about that. Uh, they, they have to. I mean, and for more reasons than one, um, I think that one of the easiest selling points is that, you know, that's how you network these days, right? If you want to, you want a job at some point in your life, you should probably be on social media, you know, that's an easy selling point. But then there's other little bit more, a uh, little deeper elements to it. Like, uh, you know, what kind of identity do you want to create for yourself um, on the internet, right? I mean, and we know as sociologists, the identity you create for yourself on the internet is not going to necessarily be the same that your intimate partner sees or something like that, right? So that's a skill that people need to be learning, um, you know, at an early age, but also just distributing information, you know, I mean, when you're sharing things and you're trying to prove a point or, you know, demonstrate something that you've learned, uh, that's a skill. That's not something that's necessarily um, inherent within us, I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think. Um, maybe younger people, because they're, they've got devices, you know, a bit earlier than I did. But uh, nonetheless, you know, I, I, it is important. And, and how to do it responsibly, like how to know that you're contributing to discourse on whatever in a responsible way, not sharing misinformation. And <laughs> Sorry, just thinking about all the misinformation. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Man, I mean, that's that that's interesting in itself, you know, Twitter and, and, and information and I don't, man, so much, right? I mean, oh my gosh, where do you even begin? I'm sorry, I probably hijacked your question, but it, it, it's interesting. <laughs> my mind just like, you know, so much out there. So, Well, I was going to say, I mean, we just did a whole thing a couple of weeks ago on QAnon. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously the like du jour disinformation. Uh, yeah topic but I mean I think it just goes to show what you're saying I mean there's so much room for digital literacy and, and the need for strong messaging about how to sort back from fiction and how to be you know how to be a responsible denizen of, of the online when I yeah. think in some ways being a good 
citizen or well I hate to use the word citizen because there's connotations with that but being an engaged person I think to some degree you have to be a public sociologist I think you have to be a little bit sociologist to meaningfully engage with the world but I'm obviously very biased as a sociologist yeah yeah I would say the same but biased too <laughs> but yeah I think it's you guys teach I mean you, you guys teach and deal with important stuff I mean that touches on on everybody you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And so what you were, I think to Elle's point about everybody kind of having to be a sociologist in a way, one of the things that I've, I've um, sort of seen through using, so, so, uh, I'm sorry, Twitter in the classroom, I did this as research, so I had to go through IRB, and I've also had different students who, who maybe had an issue with being forced into using Twitter, but, you know, they want to kind of know, how are you going to avoid, you know, having to confront misinformation or how are you going to avoid being presented with these things or how will you avoid somebody being confrontational with you or whatever, these kind of things. And my answer to that has kind of always been um, you don't, you know, you consume it and you, you have to sort of in these days learn how to, um, it, you know, in sociology, you might call it discourse analysis, right? You kind of have to preview what exists and sort of come to, to a culmination of, the perspective I suppose that you want to take or um, sort of believe and um, there might be some danger to that I mean Mm -hmm. because not everybody is necessarily trained in sifting through discourse in that way but you know everybody learns it a little bit at least. Well I think about that too with when I collect social media data I often get the question how do you know that they're real people and not bots and my response is usually well it's important to know right, that some of them are bots, that's important data, and people create bots, you know, I, th- I think, um, I think you have to know what you're getting into with social media, but I think some of the negative things are important data points, you should know that some of the things are going to be trolls, some of the things are going to be bots, I, I know a lot of people older than college age, or traditional college age, that could really use a course on Twitter, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. One thing that we found out through using uh, Twitter was that college, the other college professors who we sort of partnered with and were doing this, their feedback was like, I wish our students had this exposure in high school. Like, I wish they came to college ready to be able to contribute to this sort of social media environment, you know? Um, which is, I don't know, again, it's just sort of an interesting thing that, that people are saying who actually take the time to sort of use social media in a way that's productive, you know? Yeah. We get a lot of kickback too from people at conferences and stuff who will just outright, you know, they think it's horrible, right? They think it's, <laughs> they think it's trash and, you know, how, how are you going to, how is this not a game and how, you know, how are you actually teaching and stuff like that? But um, that's a little bit of a different story, I suppose. So. <laughs> No, I'm smiling. Uh, I'm part of a Facebook group about teaching sociology and someone posted about studying memes and a senior scholar commented, this is why sociology is going downhill. What trash is this? And it's like, number one, well, if you knew about social media, you'd know we can all see that comment. And he had tagged a bunch of other senior (laughs) scholars in it. But just this idea that that social media is not... Um, worth studying or is not serious. I mean, I think the 2016 and 2020 elections has shown that it's important to know 
what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Right. No doubt. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we've used it as a tool really to build this organization of Applied Worldwide. And it's just an important, like thinking about it that way, even in general college students, like it's a great skill to know how to use it effectively. Um, mm -hmm. So there's like a more of a learning curve there than I think people would expect. Yeah, I, I'll be curious to see how that changes. And I'll, I'm always interested. I usually do a survey with my students when we talk about social media, about what they're using. Because usually, by the time I know about something, young people aren't using it anymore. <laughs> yeah, so, so I guess um, maybe pivoting back. Yeah. Um, to, to kind of who is your user base of, of Applied Worldwide? Is it mostly college students or recent graduates? Kind of who is your audience? So, well, first, I guess I'll talk about globally where they're coming from. Um, and the U.S. is our biggest readership, but then followed by Canada and then India and Nigeria. We have a lot of readership there. And that was something that was really interesting and unexpected, especially in Nigeria. We've connected with so many sociology students and writers there that we just didn't expect. I mean, we had no background on what sociology in Nigeria is like. And there's so many students who are so excited about sociology there. But I think I, or I get the idea from the conversations that we've had with them that their sort of ability to apply ideas from sociology to a career that allows them to make money to live is even like they have even less opportunities there than we do in the U.S. Um, as far as that goes. But so it's it's students, I think, um, and instructors. We've kind of been trying to build up this like teach portion of our website for sociologists who teach even like high school students up to college students sociology and sort of how they teach students to understand it as an applied discipline rather than just teaching the theories as um, interesting academic theories but yeah so students mostly college students grad students uh, some instructors and professors and then early career professionals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mostly um, graduated or uh, just recently graduated um, or still a student. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Well, and I, it kind of makes me think of, um, Andrew often refers to law as like a trade and law school as trade school. And mm -hmm. I think so many disciplines in college, you know, I'm a big lover of knowledge for knowledge's sake, but at the end of the day, most students in college classrooms are in college to help their careers. Mm -hmm. And we often don't talk about what the skills are, right? It's, it's a trade <laughs> in some ways. Um, and we don't really highlight those, those things and how useful they are in the real world. I guess, you know, it's all the real world. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And research I think has been like, the main way that sociologists have found a path to like contribute to the world outside of producing knowledge, which is also important, but um, for different reasons, yeah. research sociology has, well, I should say social science in general has research methods that you're not going to learn in a discipline like biomedicine or something. Um, although I think qualitative research methods are becoming more popular in some of those like STEM disciplines, but 
yeah, we have lots of lots to offer, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> As sociologists. Wow. Again, if you're not in the world of academics, this will sound very strange to you, but there is like such a stigma against showing people that these are a toolkit you can use to do work. Um, it's kind of um, loftier, right? To just sit in a room and, and generate theory, which has its role. But I think telling people that like learning how to transcribe and learning how to sort data is really useful. And I think about just some of the words we use to talk about it. Like, what does it mean to be a researcher? What does it mean to be a methodologist? What does it mean to be a consultant or to work in a think tank? I think some of these things are really inaccessible to people. Yeah, this is so I have really interesting. We talk about the meaning of what, it, like, of researcher, right? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I continuously heard while I was at Purdue in the PhD program, people would tell me, this is a research degree. They kept saying this. It's a research degree. It's a research degree. And no matter how many times I came back to them and showed them the research that I was doing, right, they never quite understood. And it was completely a, like a language barrier, right? They're saying this is a research degree, meaning this is a produced knowledge degree, not necessarily like use research methods to learn something, right? right. So it's, it, there was this like meaning of researcher that just kept getting lost and I was so frustrated with it, but yeah, it really helped me mostly just to realize this sort of difference between the production of knowledge and application and to see what I meant when I was talking about sociology and to see what other people meant, right? And it wasn't, it didn't end up being something that anybody was really wrong. We just had this miscommunication completely mm -hmm. and we were just speaking different languages. And so that's what it made me think of there. Which makes me think of <laughs> um, just the idea of research in an academic setting versus in like a community research setting, which you might be able to relate to this with some of the consulting work you've done. I'm not sure what it's been like, but the advanced sort of research methods you would learn in a PhD program might not be that important to the community organization that really just wants to know like descriptive statistics or percentages of different groups that are they're serving or something or opinions that you can easily gather on a survey that you don't need to analyze with all these crazy advanced methods that are really great for producing knowledge and understanding theory more in depth. And then those those things will like inform some of that community research later. So they work together, but yeah, I think that's in, that's like something interesting that I've learned from talking to so many sociologists doing research in community settings through Applied Worldwide is that I think a lot of the skills an undergraduate student would learn in research methods class would like suffice. A master's degree would be good because I think you get a little bit more exposure to that research, but if you know how to like get descriptive statistics from a survey, that can be really useful for organizations. So when we talk about disciplines, I think statisticians get a lot of, I guess, academic clout. I think economists get a lot of academic clout. Um, mm -hmm. But sociologists, we're trained in advanced statistical modeling, but we never really call ourselves statisticians, even though we are. We absolutely are um, at the PhD level, for sure. Um, and so I think it's really interesting um, the way some of these disciplinary labels follow us around, because I, I don't think a lot of people majoring in economics get asked what they're going to do with that degree. But I hear that a lot from my sociology students. 
it's a really similar skill set. Yeah. Although I would argue sociologists are a little bit better rounded. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had someone somewhat recently, actually, I think it was in the summer, but that feels like not that long ago this year. Um, ask something about or say something about well you don't do like math or anything for your research right and I was like actually (laughs) me and tons of other sociologists use pretty advanced statistics to analyze our data but it's just interesting that perception is everywhere um yeah and I think academics is, is a small world and it's a very competitive world. And so I used to think I didn't have that many statistical skills because I couldn't do certain incredibly complex models. And Mm -hmm. I was talking to someone else uh, who, you know, their, their discipline doesn't really require statistics at all. And they're like, well, anywhere, anywhere else that would be considered pretty advanced knowledge. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Maybe we should get out more. Yeah, yeah. you realize um, how important and valuable your skills are, I think, when you step outside of the academic bubble, because everybody in it has mostly the same skills. Well, and it's wild to me. um, So in academics, we talk about two types of markets. There's the academic job market, and then there's the non-academic job market. And for those of you who aren't, aren't academics, you might notice that's kind of a wild divide because it's this one specific kind of job versus every other kind of imaginable job, right? That's, that's not really a meaningful category. Um, so I think it's really great that you're doing the work you're doing because it does seem like non-academic jobs are just this sort of vague idea of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this reminds me of a conversation we had recently um, with, who's trying to start his own organization and he's asking us questions and advice on like next steps that he should take. Essentially, he was, he's, he's working in Nigeria and he's got a ton of interest from people who are, who are interested in sociology um, and he's trying to institutionalize it. He's trying to create a structure, a curriculum, um, you know, something, right? And so he, he started out by coming up with these four different categories that people could go into um, I don't remember them. All. Media was one. Media, I think economics, um, government, and then I think he calls something humanities. But nonetheless, he categorizes these four different areas that somebody could go um, and work in society, I guess, as opposed to academic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he was asking us for our advice. And like, my, I kind of started <laughs> venting to him a little bit that one of the problems is that sociology is just not that popular, yeah. right? If you look at economics, you look at psychology, you know, again, I can Google psychology and there's somebody within my vicinity I could go out to and talk to who has that title, right? I couldn't do the same with sociology. You know, it's just not that popular. And so I think that before we can like fully institutionalize and create an environment where it's like academic sociology, you know, you can take these different tracks, right? Academic or applied economics or applied government, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, we have to popularize this in a way that people know what sociology is, right? I mean, if you're creating a job application and you're looking for characteristics of somebody, and you know, 
if you don't know what sociology is, you're not going to write down that you could use a sociology major in that position, right? It's just not that popular yet. And so that is also something that I think we can change, but anybody who's creating digital content right now can change. And that's just by popularizing this, this really, this term that's really important. There's a lot of really great work going on, um, valuable skills, like you say, but um, people just don't know about it like they should, I don't think. Right. And like Elle said earlier, we're kind of sociology is kind of having a moment. And I feel like we have to take advantage of that moment because like you see popular discourse talking about things like critical race theory and like these ideas that sociologists have been talking about and studying for decades. But it's sort of just now getting into the popular discourse, I would say, because of social media or maybe not just because. But um, yeah, I feel like I, I just really hope that not just applied sociologists, but academic sociologists and whole discipline sort of takes advantage of that moment um, by saying like, hey, we have some answers for all of these things that you're curious about, or you're not talking about this in the way you should be talking about it, but you're trying, but let us help. <laughs> We're certainly trying. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> Well, uh, I want to, you know, be respectful of your guys' time. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. There. Um, this is a really cool project. I think, uh, you know, I'll be the first as someone outside of the community to say we need, we do need to popularize sociology. We need to popularize being involved, you know, people with that degree being involved in the community and not just academics. So, you know, keep up the good work, guys. And thank you so much for, for being here. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for giving us a space to share the work that we're doing. Appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah. So where where can people go to to follow your project to to you know kind of enjoy the content you are creating? Um, so appliedworldwide.com is our website, and you can follow us on Twitter at apply sociology a p p l y sociology, and Instagram is applied underscore worldwide is our handle. Um, and we're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well under Applied Worldwide. Yep. Uh, we also have a newsletter, monthly newsletter. So uh, um, that you can find on our website as well. So lots of ways to stay in, stay in touch. Mm -hmm. Great. And so if our, if our listeners want to join your network, uh, how can they kind of become members or subscribers? Yeah. So if you, if you want to subscribe to the newsletter, um, on our website, there's a tab for newsletter, and then you'll just enter your email address. You'll get a monthly email just with updates from publications that week or different pro or that month and different projects. Um, and if anyone's interested in contributing through writing either an article or a blog entry, um, you can email us at appliedworldwide at gmail.com, and we can sort of push that idea forward, whatever that idea is. And we'll have, uh, by the time this hits the, uh, I was going to say the airwaves, but I don't really know how podcasts work. Uh, but by the time this, this hits your device, we will have had our blog post up. Yeah. Uh, you can come read ours up at uh, appliedworldwide.com. Mm -hmm. That's right. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, stay safe out there and, and we'll talk to you soon.